Do you remember the plot of Dr. Strangelove? There's a rogue general who almost sets off nuclear Armageddon, unbeknownst to the president. Well, what if it turned out that that possibility was not satire, but actually true? That's the story behind Daniel Ellsberg's new book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. If you have watched Steven Spielberg's most recent movie, The Post, then you're probably familiar with Daniel Ellsberg. He's the guy in it who leaks the Pentagon Papers, first to the New York Times and then to the Washington Post. But before that, in the late 50s and the early 60s, Daniel Ellsberg worked on arguably much more dangerous and more secret issues around nuclear weapons, the strategies of how to use them, when to use them, and who could use them. And when he copied all those papers about Vietnam, he also copied all of his work on nuclear war planning. I got to talk to Daniel Ellsberg over Skype recently, and he started by telling me why he ended up not putting out the papers about nuclear war until now. So I felt if I put out the nuclear material at the same time, uh, that it would totally overshadow the Vietnam history, and uh, the latter would have no real effect on, on politics. So I thought that rather than do that, I would wait until the Pentagon Papers had had their run, in effect, and it had whatever effect they were capable of having. And then I would enlighten the world about the nuclear dangers. But you, when you released the Pentagon Papers, knew that there was a real possibility that you would go to jail. So you must have been reserving the possibility that you might not get the chance to leak these nuclear papers. Uh, yes and no. I expected with almost certainty that I would be in prison for the rest of my life, but not right away. Uh, as it turned out, I was uh, out on bail for the nearly two years of my court processes and uh, could have done anything. Now, there was also a possibility. I don't think I even considered it too much that I would be in prison and totally out of communication, like, for example, Chelsea Manning uh, for 10 and a half months or Mordecai Vanunum in Israel in solitary for 10 and a half years and really uh, unable to communicate. But I had the image that uh, even with the Pentagon Papers, I would probably, more likely than not, be in jail very shortly when I started copying them. But I hope to have copies uh, outside and be able to communicate to people that they should continue putting them out. So I wouldn't be able to do it, but others would. And that was true of the nuclear as well. I gave that to my brother, who's uh, passed away some 20 years ago now, but uh, I counted on him to get the nuclear material out if I were in prison. But I, on the whole, expected to be out long enough to be able to handle that myself. When you started at RAND in the summer of 1958, you write in the book that you couldn't believe that the world would long escape nuclear holocaust. I wonder if you can describe the national mood at that time about the Soviet Union and nuclear war. Well, the mood in what you could call the establishment, certainly the national security community, so-called, in the Pentagon and CIA and, uh, and the White House, but the mood of all those people virtually who had access to classified material was that we were facing a Soviet Union, and for that matter, a Sino-Soviet bloc in the 50s that was bent on world conquest and uh, was in effect a Hitler with nuclear weapons, only somewhat more prudent and cautious and thus deterrable, so that uh, there was a chance of holding them back if you could confront them with a certainty of virtual annihilation if they uh, attacked us. And the supposed motive that they would have for attacking us was that we were the main obstacle in their way of world domination, military domination. And uh, therefore, they would want to eliminate us if they could with a first strike of nuclear weapons. But that wasn't actually true, right? No, I think that was, looking back on it, a myth, basically. You could say a mistake, but I think it was a very motivated mistake. It was very good for the aerospace industry and the services and for our hegemony in Europe because we were able to offer them protection by nuclear weapons uh, from uh, an otherwise likely invasion, which in fact I think was not in the cards at all uh, in terms of Soviet ambitions. And you say at the beginning of the book that you were an unabashed cold warrior, you were anti-communist. I mean, you were a believer in the cause. You didn't see the lies in it. I thought I was doing the most important work I could imagine in the world, uh, holding off 
nuclear war, uh, specifically war initiated by the Soviets, uh, either non-nuclear in an invasion of some sort or a nuclear attack on the U.S. But actually, the reality was then and now that the sub-launch missiles, which cannot be targeted by the uh, Russian ICBMs uh, or planes <clears throat> or cruise missiles or whatever, they're virtually invulnerable to uh, Russian attack or Soviet attack, should be not only the base of our deterrence, but essentially only the only weapons needed for deterrence to the extent that any are needed. The ICBMs have been anachronistic for at least half a century since the Soviets developed um, and deployed significant numbers of sub-launch missiles. The Air Force's ICBMs have had no useful military role since, although you can pretend they have by uh, imagining that somehow eliminating Soviet ICBMs or Russian ICBMs with ours makes us more survivable. It doesn't in the face of Soviet submarines. It, it doesn't have that effect. So that's been a myth which throughout that period and this year is highly profitable for the aerospace industry, which has very great influence on the government. I just read yesterday, Boeing's part of the, of the budget that was just released is $35 billion to one aerospace corporation. And uh, that there's there's uh, no money, on the other hand, on uh, not sufficiently or adequately in dismantling those weapons. If there was many jobs and votes and profits in dismantling ICBMs, it would have been done long ago. So I want to ask you about the doomsday machine, which isn't as the name evokes a single device sort of hiding in a warehouse, you know, poised to destroy all life as we know it at the touch of a single button. But it is a machine and it exists. Um, and you ha has since the, at least the 1950s that you, you write. Can you describe it? Yes. Uh, Herman Kahn imagined a device, as you say, that might be buried in our own territory or at sea and uh, that would destroy all life on Earth under various circumstances and thus hopefully deter the occurrence of those circumstances. And he imagined that it might be very cheap because you wouldn't have to truck warheads half the world over to destroy targets in the Soviet Union or Russia. Uh, you would just explode it and perhaps with radioactivity, maybe cobalt, a long-lived radioactive isotope uh, or uh, element that would um, uh, destroy all life on Earth, as in the book uh, On the Beach which is, uh, confronts a uh, cloud of radioactivity from cobalt bombs reaching eventually Australia and, and destroying all life. Okay, the advantage would be cheapness, actually. And, uh, but he said, nevertheless, it killed too many people and would not be adopted by uh, any power, really. It was just a hypothetical notion to show that uh, a cheap deterrent wasn't necessarily a good deterrent. Actually, it, we had it at that point, and it wasn't a cheap one. It was a very expensive form of doomsday machine that our Joint Chiefs estimated would not destroy all life on Earth, but only perhaps a third to a half of all life on Earth, uh, in Eurasia especially. But it was in bases in Europe, on aircraft carriers, and above all, it came to be bases in the US of both bombers and, and missiles that were very, used the most advanced technology in the world in the form of our warheads and our missiles and our uh, B-52 aircraft and our huge radar systems for warning so that we could get the second blow in first so that we could preempt in the case of an attempted Soviet attack. So it was extremely expensive, but it did the job of killing vast numbers of people, including our own allies in Europe from the radioactive fallout from our attacks in East Europe and um, Soviet Union. NATO Europe would be collateral damage to our own attacks, in effect. And we, in effect, accepted that as an unavoidable cost of this uh, necessary system. Uh, we did have a doomsday machine. The Russians at that time did not accept against Europe. As I've just said, aside from our own radioactive fallout on Europe, the Russians did have the ability to annihilate Europe directly 
with their short-range, medium-range, intermediate-range missiles and bombers, of which they had very many. And now they have something much more elaborate. Yes. Uh, well, it's pretty much the same now. Add satellites to the system, and uh, uh, it's it's pretty nothing much significant has changed. The numbers of weapons have gone down, you could say drastically, by 80%, and yet they were so much in excess of what was needed to end life on Earth through nuclear winter uh, 50 years ago and more that uh, it's made no real change. We still have now two doomsday machines because the Russians did imitate ours in the mid-60s after Khrushchev was ousted. Uh, Brezhnev uh, gave the generals in Russia what they wanted and what they wanted was what the U.S. had. China didn't do that, by the way, and uh, had what I... If there is such a thing as a sane nuclear policy, uh, China has had it up till now, although they're getting edgy, too, and going toward in the direction of experimenting with launch on warning, which they've eschewed up till now, and with more numbers of missiles. But they have had very small numbers of minimum deterrence numbers against the U.S. and others for decades now, for half a century and uh, did not try to imitate the U.S. at all. Russia did at vast expense, which contributed to their bankruptcy of the, of the system. And um, uh, the effect is, then, of two doomsday machines on hair triggers, coupled together, in effect, uh, making the system more than twice as dangerous as it would be with just one. And the, uh, the advantage of getting rid of, even of one of those to the world's security and our security would be very great. If the Russians got rid of theirs, their ICBMs in particular, very good for everybody. If we got rid of our ICBMs unilaterally, we would deprive the Russians of targets that would tempt, uh, for their ICBMs, that would tempt them to launch on warning if they got false warning of an attack, which they have gotten several times. And we protected from annihilation by in a couple of cases, an individual who acted more prudently than his own colleagues or his superiors and uh, short-circuited the process. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So there's a doomsday scenario that you encountered that I believe was laid out by the Joint Chiefs during the Eisenhower administration um, in which general war with the Soviet Union, which was described as any armed conflict with the USSR, would result in a strategic plan which essentially brought about the annihilation of both the Soviet Union and China. Um, Correct. And as I've just said, by the way, unfortunately, you, it would also bring about the annihilation of Europe by our own attacks without any of our warheads actually landing on Europe. So it was basically the annihilation of Eurasia. And with Soviet retaliation, as, it, as we imagined, in the late 50s, which uh, a capability that didn't exist, or with a capability that did exist by the mid 60s, there would have been retaliation directly, of course, on Europe and on the US. So basically, you'd have the Northern Hemisphere uh, annihilated in terms of civilization, of cities, most of the population. In those days, it wasn't literally a doomsday machine as they saw it, because the Southern Hemisphere, we had an extra hemisphere. That <laughs> still exists for humanity. And um, uh, you may remember, what was the recent movie about a tipping point in climate where the people in the North are escaping to the Southern Hemisphere? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it was The Day After Tomorrow, which takes place in the New York Public Library. Yeah, uh, right. The <laughs> You're right, yeah. exactly. Well, the, the New York Public Library survives pretty well, as I recall. <laughs> they have to burn the books, but uh, the people inside... Uh, by burning furniture and books, uh, do persist for quite a while. But um, incidentally, it's interesting how I couldn't remember the name of that because I was confusing it with The Day After, which was a book about a nuclear war. I'm sorry, a movie about a nuclear war on television. And that one disturbed Reagan when it came out so much that he said not to have been able to get out of bed the next day and was very, very concerned about it and which contributed to his willingness to discuss total elimination of nuclear weapons, or at least ballistic missiles, with Gorbachev. 
uh, Ed Reykjavik, that, that movie had an impact on him. Well, that was the day after. And the one mentioning about climate is the day after tomorrow. It's an interesting comparison because the nuclear war, of course, could have happened yesterday or any day, time in the last half century, or tomorrow or today. It's true. It is an immediate peril. The climate is not probably today or tomorrow. Uh, the tipping point, wherever it is, is some years whether it's a decade or several decades or more in the future, they are both existential threats to human civilization, the climate problem and the, and the nuclear problem. The nuclear more clearly a threat to all of civilization. I haven't, in, I've been following the climate catastrophe uh, literature, and I can't get from them what the actual effect is on total world population exactly. Tremendous uh, emigration of people from low-lying districts and drought districts and so forth, waves of migration that make the current uh, dissent and disputes in Europe uh, look very minor, just a rehearsal. And we're not dealing with that rehearsal very well. But what does it do to overall population or uh, cities? I'm not, I haven't seen a clear answer. On the nuclear, what it turns out is we don't have a spare hemisphere after all. The radioactivity uh, does not, uh, on the whole, get below the equator if it, the warheads are in the northern hemisphere, because the winds from the equator run toward the poles, and they keep the radioactivity out of the southern hemisphere to a large extent, till its radioactivity has decayed so much that it's not as lethal. That's not true of the smoke from burning cities, because it turns out, they learned in 1983 and confirmed in the last decade, very strongly, that the smoke from firestorms, a special kind of fire that creates very strong updrafts, and we had only three instances of that on a major scale in World War II. But nearly every nuclear weapon would cause this firestorm, which would loft smoke, hundreds of millions of tons of soot and black smoke, into the stratosphere, where it wouldn't rain out. It would surround the globe uh, quickly, above the winds, by the way. It would uh, keep back the radio fallout. Uh, it would be lofted and uh, block sunlight. Uh, it's not a question of radioactivity decaying. The blackness would persist for as much as uh, a decade, blocking out some 70% of the sunlight in the case of a, any large exchange of nuclear weapons. So the, these plans for annihilating the Soviet Union and China, when they were first drafted, were largely kept secret from the civilian authorities. And um, you write in the book, uh, for several years, one of my highest objectives for my own personal influence on national defense was moving a few pieces of paper from one level of authority to a higher one, from a military to a civilian level. What were your hopes for moving those pieces of paper up? And were they realized? Service, narrow service objectives of having more planes, more promotions, more budget, had led in secret these otherwise intelligent and patriotic men to very, very foolish, immoral, stupid, uh, but uh, disastrous policies, and not for the first time in human history, where men, act, generally men, acting in secret, uh, were able to pursue disastrous policies. And I hoped there that uh, civilian eyes, uh, looking at this like the president's, would um, see how crazy this was and unacceptable and change it. And actually, uh, for example, Robert McNamara and uh, President Kennedy were appalled by these policies. For that matter, General Eisenhower had been appalled by them uh, as president and yet had passed them on rather than have a fight with the Pentagon on the issue. Why? That's uh, a good question. Nobody. I, I think I have to say that no president has found it worth his while, and it's been all men up till now, they all uh, find the political economic power of the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about. This is what he was talking about. And uh, it's there. It's real. It's not just a rhetorical 
the notion of Eisenhower's, uh, there is a military-industrial complex, and there is in the Soviet Union as well. Uh, now Russia is a capitalist country, and they their bureaus and agencies and uh, manufacturers now have profit motives, just like Lockheed and Boeing. And the influence is very great. Campaign contributions to people on armed services committees and other congresspeople, jobs in districts all over the country. The Pentagon has been increasingly uh, clever, really, from their point of view, in placing subcontracts, not just in Boeing headquarters, but uh, or Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, but in getting them distributed to almost every community in the country, in 50 states. And so the jobs aspect of this, the votes, the campaign contributions, and the possibility for a very lucrative uh, uh, futures by generals uh, when they retire early. All of this has been a powerful political force, and not only in our country, uh, but in particular in our country. And um, since really the very end of World War II, when the aerospace industry found itself uh, having just lost its uh, market for the government, that is, for tens and hundreds of thousands of planes, and suddenly it went away. Uh, they were now, uh, they found that the domestic market for transports and passenger planes didn't remotely compensate for that. And I've read also that uh, they found they weren't really able to compete in a uh, market economy with a GE or GM that were used to making uh, products uh, on a cost-profitable basis. The aerospace industry had uh, emerged enormously in World War II on a cost-plus basis for selling only to the government. And they weren't really able to compete in cost terms and efficiency and so forth. So they had to have a military budget that would allow for a large air force and for large submarines, a uh, fleet of submarines. Yes, they, they have other priorities, remember, and they, uh, of various kinds, and they see a fight with the military in Congress because the military, by the way, uh, Eisenhower's first term for that concept in his drafts speech was military industrial congressional complex. And for some reason, they dropped that congressional out of it. But it's been called somewhat the Iron Triangle, the services, the uh, uh, producers, uh, market, and, the, and Congress, who are very uh, symbiotic here, and they, uh, they work together. So each of them, the presidents see, uh, can I get whatever else it is I want to get, whether it's a health program or... Um, a highway program or uh, whatever, infrastructure, for example. Can I get that in the midst of a fight uh, with the congressional supporters of the producers and the military, the services? And um, uh, keep in mind, by the way, that uh, there's a lot of overlap in even the personnel in and out, uh, members of Congress, uh, from the services in many cases, Goldwater, for example, who ran as president preferred by the Joint Chiefs in 1964, was a major general in the Air Force Reserve. And uh, a lot of them have, have had connections like that. Certainly, though, in the corporations themselves, they're filled with generals uh, who have retired from having given great contracts to those very corporations in many cases. And I want to say I have every reason, I, I think it goes without saying almost, that the same is true in Russia uh, today and in other countries. There's a sentence early on in your book that is probably both the most reassuring sentence I've ever read and also the most unnerving sentence I've ever read. You say, the hand authorized to pull the trigger on U.S. nuclear forces has never been exclusively that of the president nor even the highest military officials, which when you hear it sort of obviously makes sense that it's completely insane to have, you know, one person in sole control of world annihilation, which makes me curious, um, well, A, what the truth is, of course, and, and B, why you think this belief of the one person persists. Well, obviously people want to believe that uh, at most one person 
would uh, be have the capability of annihilating uh, our population, which and they don't think of that as the real risk on the whole. Of course, they just they haven't been confronted with the reality of nuclear winter uh, resulting from the smoke uh, being lofted from our attacks. That did get a lot of attention, publicity, when it was first introduced as a possibility in 1983-84 by Carl Sagan and others, Turco, uh, Toon, various other environmental scientists, including Russians. But uh, it was then questioned uh, in the same way, for example, that the carcinogenic properties of tobacco were long questioned, including by some scientists who should have known better, but for whatever reason said, no, this isn't proven. It's not doubt. Uh, it's it's uh, worthy of doubt. Uh, Naomi Oreskes called this uh, in a very good book, The Merchants of Doubt, about tobacco, about climate, very much so. We have an entire party now devoted to a denial of the reality of uh, climate change, man-made climate change. But getting back to your point, the public wants to believe that lower level officers generally don't have their finger on the button as well. And yet the reality of the vulnerability of command and control in every nuclear state is such that I, I doubt that uh, we don't know the situation in, in every state, but take Russia as the big example, just like us, they have made it assured since uh, they were read about our plans to decapitate Moscow and their command and control, that that will not paralyze their response uh, or their capability for response and actually the likelihood um, of uh, their retaliating in, a, in an annihilating way. They have what is called the dead hand system, uh, perimeter system, which is not unlike ours, really, uh, because Eisenhower had delegated, as you're referring to, a delegated authority in case communications were cut with Washington, which in those days didn't require a strike on Washington. Communications with the Pacific, for example, in those days, prior to a lot of satellites, uh, were out part of every day. And during that period, the Commander-in-Chief Pacific was essentially had authority to uh, use nuclear weapons if he felt it necessary. For the same reason, since communications with the Western Pacific were also out from Hawaii part of every day. Uh, he, he delegated that to lower commanders uh, like 7th Fleet and others. And that went on further, even further on down. So there were, in fact, many fingers on buttons, uh, all metaphorical, since there's almost no buttons per se in the system. But uh, in terms of the authority uh, and uh, to launch nuclear weapons under some circumstances and... Beyond that, of course, the question is who had the capability to do it uh, without authority? And that was far more distributed. In those days, there were virtually no locks on weapons. So right at the lowest level, um, a, a pilot on a single plane with a, a weapon, a 1.1 megaton thermonuclear weapon underslung under it, uh, had the ability to drop half a World War II worth of explosive power on his own initiative at that point. In other words, the world was much more dangerous in that respect than people imagined. Also, the public was not aware of how many times false alarms had occurred, both in the U.S. and in Russia, in the USSR, that could have resulted in these annihilating attacks. Although you think we would possibly be more aware now, given what just happened in Hawaii last month. Well, that's brought to the attention of uh, people in general, uh, a million people in Hawaii were suddenly brought to be aware of the situation that has actually prevailed secretly for all of us in the world for the last 60 years or so. And that is the possibility of everything being destroyed in their world, uh, everyone going, all the institutions going, everything going in less than 30 minutes. And that's the way we've lived for, for half a century, everyone, without really worrying about it or being aware of it. And really, that Hawaii false alarm was not at all an unusual one. Uh, 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 much more dangerous alarms reaching the highest levels of authority, unlike Hawaii, uh, have occurred a number of times. The public is not aware of that. If I knew no more 
I told my wife just the other day, I was thinking, the public is not very concerned about this, though Hawaii woke some people up a little. But uh, if I didn't know more about the past false alarms and the close calls we've had to nuclear war, I wouldn't be worried either. I wouldn't be spending my life the way I am, trying to warn people and, and alert, alert them to this problem. Uh, if we'd gotten through 70 years without even getting close to thinking about nuclear war uh, actually occurring, um, what's to worry? Uh, we'll get through another 70 years, uh, no problem. Well, do you think that we are better off knowing, or do you think it's sort of better to live in the sort of Grand Inquisitor-style ignorance is bliss? First, in terms of selling the weapons— it's certainly safer for them not to have the public worrying about their tax money being used in a way that is sustaining a dangerous hair-trigger doomsday machine. That distribution is not actually helpful to budgeting a trillion and a half dollars in the next 30 years to, uh, or half a trillion in the next 10 years to rebuilding, modernizing, improving the doomsday machine. And that's what both Obama proposed to do in order to get an agreement on some limitation on numbers from the Senate, New START program, he called it. Uh, he accepted the idea, I, I would like to think somewhat reluctantly, of rebuilding the whole uh, system in terms of the uh, lower numbers, which are still more than enough to cause an appear winter. Obama seems to have been the first president actually to take seriously the idea of getting rid of our ICBMs, despite the political opposition to that, uh, you know, that anachronism, going to no first use, uh, building our programs on the assumption we would not initiate nuclear war rather than threaten it, as all our presidents have done, and getting rid of a number of other weapons as well. He was simply blocked by that by opposition from his own defense secretary, who seemed to be reflecting the services and the military-industrial complex. And now Trump uh, has just released his nuclear posture review, or his defense department has released their nuclear posture review, and they seem to have taken a much different tone. It's not uh, uh, different in tone, uh, no doubt, in terms that it, it doesn't even pretend to be aimed toward reducing the role of nuclear weapons. Uh, Obama did pretend that, at least, in his policies. And what I'm suggesting is I can imagine that Obama personally actually was a president who did want to reduce this role. And I think we've had others. Uh, president Carter, actually Reagan himself. Uh, built, <laughs> I'm about to say each of these people actually built up the machine greatly. Uh, Kennedy was not happy about this. John Johnson, definitely not. Eisenhower, as I said, was appalled by the actual plans, and yet passed on them, passed them on. Uh, I'm not sure which president was really eager about this. Uh, Trump certainly on the one, really talks about, I will be the last to use nuclear weapons. I take them very seriously, he said in the campaign. And in the same speech, he would say, but can't take them off the table. Uh, they've got to be part of the bargaining. I cannot say no first use. Chris Matthews almost begged him to say, just say it. I will not use nuclear weapons first. And he wouldn't. But that was just like every other president. Uh, so in effect, he was saying, I will be the last to use them unless I'm the first. And that's basically what all our presidents have said, faced, I would say, with our alliance role, which is that of a protection racket, in a word. Uh, we build up a threat to them uh, so we can offer them protection and get something in return for it. Trump has been complaining we're not getting as much for it as we should. He wants to change the bargaining terms a bit. But he still wants to threaten first use of nuclear weapons. And he seems less reluctant to do it. He certainly wants Americans to be great again, which seems to be that uh, let's get back our monopoly of nuclear weapons that Harry Truman had. Well, that's not possible. And how about superiority? Well, that's not possible either. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean anything with these weapons and these numbers of weapons. Uh, how about parity? Well, that really doesn't mean much either. The Chinese don't have nearly one hundredth of the weapons of the Russians or the U.S. 
Uh, are they really with less deterrence with their weapons? Uh, I don't think so. So uh, it, I have to conclude that the uh, aerospace is not as important in uh, China as it is in Russia and the U.S. Aerospace industry. We were talking earlier about delegation and the number of people who are able to set off this doomsday device, which is, of course, the crux of the plot of Dr. Strangelove, which is, uh, I guess, where the title of the book comes from. So when Strangelove came out in 1964, you had been aware of these realities for five or six years. And I wonder what the experience of seeing that movie was like for you. Well, as you know, I uh, went to it as a, from the book, that uh, I, I went to it with my boss, my friend Harry Rowan, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, and we went to it as a part of our work. In effect, here's this movie coming out about uh, the actual nuclear war, the sort of thing we were working on guns for, what is Hollywood have to say about it, and came out in the afternoon, the sunshine, having having left the Pentagon for the only time ever uh, during the day for such a thing, saying that was a documentary. Not only could anything in that movie, no matter how crazy or amazing it seemed, it was all possible. Uh, a rogue general sending off a wing of bombers, uh, his superiors saying, well, if one wing goes, uh, perhaps we ought to go all together. The the inability of the president to call back a wing of bombers that had been sent off by an order, that seemed fantastic. You know, imagine, you know, nothing but fiction. It was reality. SAC, the Strategic Air Command, had no stop order in its envelopes or its uh, authentication procedures. No way to call back uh, once an order had gone. And to, call, to return to something you said much earlier, part of that was the distrust of the civilian authority, the fear that in the process, which could take six, 12 hours sometimes for these bombers to reach their targets, uh, the president might get cold feet or the other side might give a, an apparent surrender uh, or terms and the president would want to hold off or something. And as uh, General Power put it to someone, screw up the plan and uh, lead to catastrophe, ignoring, of course, that catastrophe was all that was ahead in general, but to keep them from doing their planned jobs and so forth. So they, they didn't really want a stop order. Their excuse was, well, the Russians might get that code and would, uh, would uh, abort our effort. So we can't have a stop order at all. Well, that, that remained true for a very long time. I think that did get modified eventually, but it took a long time. So that is the kind of craziness um, that is in Dr. Strangelove, the movie, which is worth seeing again, by the way. That's the way it was and is, basically. I mean, the, the levels of craziness that you describe in this book, I mean, there's, I forget what, why they were investigating this, but someone was investigating whether they could stop the uh, Earth's rotation momentarily. Well, that was a relatively wild scheme, which, however, got taken seriously by a lot of Air Force officers, that the, uh, uh, you would install a thousand, and as Somebody at Rand said, well, that wouldn't be enough. But uh, a thousand uh, Atlas engines, our best, biggest rocket engines, uh, install them attached to the Earth. And if enemy missiles were on the way, you would fire all these things simultaneously and stops the Earth's rotation for a fraction of a second, but enough for those enemy warheads to overshoot their targets and hit uh, Cleveland, let's say, instead of uh, Montana or ICBMs uh, in North Dakota. And of course, they said, at first I thought this was a joke, and it was fairly obvious that a lot of other stuff would be flying around at that point, and like everything on Earth, you know, not just buildings, but lakes, oceans, everything would be uh, uh, in, in motion at that point. I did have the feeling, you know, as I said, could I be in the long, wrong line of work when I realized that people had lost perspective to that extent? Now, I don't know how many people took that seriously, really, uh, include, you know, anywhere in the system, certainly not anyone high up. And yet, 
our actual plans were scarcely more sane than that. Uh, to this day, what either Putin or Trump is threatening to do in initiating nuclear war against each other, whether it's in the Baltics or Ukraine or Syria, it might be, or wherever else, and both sides retain that first use threat now, is nuclear winter, is killing everyone, is a doomsday machine. They're threatening, triggering a doomsday machine. Because the U.S. and Russia, the chance of limiting our attacks is uh, negligible, very small. It's not quite impossible, uh, no doubt. It could Somebody could short-circuit the thing at some point. But the overwhelming likelihood is that once we get into armed conflict, and certainly nuclear conflict on any level, that will escalate. And that means carrying out our capabilities, which involve killing all the harvests on Earth. Uh, it's insane. As uh, Michael Wolf quotes one of Trump's closest friends, apparently, uh, and amazing enough, as far as we can tell, still seems to be a friend, Thomas Merrick. Uh, as saying of, of his friend Donald Trump, he's not only crazy, he's stupid. Well, these plans are both crazy and stupid from every point of view. And the stupid is, in a way, less, you know, obviously, less important. They are insane. But are they insane as threats? No, they produce some... Uh, uh, careful walking on the other side. They might deter, they might do this and that. They do produce a lot of profits and jobs, although less jobs than almost any other use of that money would produce. Health, education, infrastructure, putting our uh, trillion dollar defense budget to work on those other things would produce far more jobs, far more distribution. Uh, less profits, however, for the specific uh, electronics and aerospace industries. Uh, so there are those benefits of making these crazy threats or threats are crazy. <clears throat> I say uh, the benefits of those don't even remotely compensate for the risk, no matter how small you regard that risk as being. Anybody who said it's zero is totally uninformed, ignorant, or in denial, with probably good reason. So speaking of Michael Wolf, actually, a question I was curious to ask you is, you know, it came up when his book came out, although it's come out plenty before that, and I'm sure we'll continue, you know, people who are inside the Trump administration who think that the president is incapable of holding office. And then the question is inevitably raised, you know, what is the morality or what is the responsibility of someone inside that administration who feels that way to speak out publicly? And as someone with very specific knowledge on that kind of behavior, I wonder what you think about that question. Well, the problem did not begin with Donald Trump, and uh, and the military-industrial complex will not disappear when uh, when Trump leaves office. So the problem will be with us after Trump, uh, assuming there is a world after Trump. And the truth is, um, the risks have been there, and the uh, need to inform the public has been there all along. Um, I do believe that people. Well, as I said myself, it seemed to me self-evident that um, in 1969, when I was copying these Pentagon papers, that it was worth life in prison, worth my career, but worth life in prison, actually, to put out this information, to put out these documents, and to move these pieces of paper from the, Pen from the Pentagon, from Rand, even from the White House, to the public and to Congress. Well... As you know, I lost those pieces of paper, but I've been trying to get the word out for 40 years in uh, every other method that I could, getting arrested many times, uh, testifying in court under oath on many of the things that are in this book. So by analogy, I'm saying you're asking about people in my position today. I would say, don't do what I did. Don't lose control of the documents and don't wait until mission and missiles have actually fired. Don't wait for a North Korean war that would not probably end life on Earth, but would make the dismantling of the doomsday machines, I think, quite out of reach. Be willing to consider uh, 
risking or even sacrificing your career, even your freedom, or your life if it came to that. You wouldn't likely do so as on the battlefield. But the risk of one's career and one's relationships um, and one's family, really, when it comes to income, children's education and all that, those risks are very real and they're very large in personal terms. And yet, the threat to not only your grandchildren, but everyone's grandchildren and children in the indefinite future does rest on changing these threats and this readiness uh, for destruction. It, it rests on dismantling the doomsday machine. And I think starting, let's say, with getting rid of our ICBMs. And I don't see that happening without the public knowing more than they do about the current dangers. So people who know about current and past false alarms uh, with documents and the ready and the actual plans, I think, should share them not only with Congress, which has never had a hearing on these matters of uh, these uh, on the nature of the plans and the targeting, and with the public, not only Congress, because Congress won't act without public pressure. Public pressure can't be assured. Uh, people rearranging their lives and their political priorities on the basis of this, it often doesn't happen. But it won't happen without people knowing more than they do now. And that takes other people uh, breaking their promises to keep secrets in favor of their oath to the Constitution and to the good of this country. There are a couple words that kept popping in my head when I read this book, uh, responsibility and penitence that I wanted to ask you about, because I, I get this sense that um, the work that you did in nuclear strategic planning, obviously you don't feel great about it, and that something about sharing all of this information is the responsibility you feel for having done that in a sort of a penitential act. Uh, that's, that's an understandable inference. I don't think it's right. Many people have raised that. Uh, I do feel worse and worse about what I did in the past as time goes on and as I reflect on it and, and, and face that. But at the time of, deci of deciding to share this information, uh, either on Vietnam, which I'd also participated in very much, or on the nuclear matters, was really not in my mind, and I don't think even that much in my uh, unconscious, as far as I can tell, looking back. The word responsibility was very definitely in my mind, but it was responsibility of someone who had this information. And I will say responsibility of someone who worked in this field that had ended up uh, so disastrously, but having been part of it, yes, I felt that gave me a special responsibility. And I don't to try to change it. It gave me more knowledge than other people had uh, based on my experience. And also, I did have a feeling that doesn't seem to be widely shared uh, by others. The, the mere fact of my participating in these, <laughs> like the charge of the light brigade, in effect, but having been part of something that was very mistaken and very wrong uh, and, and was having terrible consequences, did give me a special responsibility for trying to change it even though I had not been in charge or had not had much influence on that. I wasn't the person in charge. That seems very natural to me, uh, uh, oddly, and I think to, uh, I don't know, other whistleblowers, I suspect. It doesn't seem to be widely held. But anyway, uh, as my wife used to say, when I would say, you know, I don't feel guilty about what I did. I was doing it in good faith. I, I, this is what I believed at the time. Uh, and she said, you know, you should feel more guilty than you do. And I didn't necessarily accept that, but I took it seriously because she was saying it. Over time, I've come to see more in that uh, than I recognized at the time. No, I didn't know better. But why didn't I? As I've suggested, we at RAND certainly thought we were, we were responding rightly to a, a terrible, frightening situation. But why didn't we examine anymore, the hypothesis that that wasn't the reality. Well, because that's not what humans do. We were in denial. And I think this whole, and for reasons, it was a motivated denial. 
in various ways. Our careers, our associations, our access to information, our ability to have some influence, little as it was, all depended on not thinking certain things. Um, I did develop uh, what I wanted to call the Ellsberg axiom, but it hasn't really caught on <laughs> years, which was anyone can be as dumb as he has to be to keep his job. <laughs> and uh, uh, that that one has not been disproven. Uh, and so when we say, okay, I was dumb about it, yeah, and you had to be young, dumb, or you would have lost associations, you would have been ostracized, and that's a prospect that humans don't face easily. It's much more easy for them to face on a battlefield losing their limbs and their life in the service of their comrades and of the authority of the boss of the commander-in-chief for which they will, at the worst, not be ostracized or condemned or called traitors or crazy. But to do something against the authority and uh, against the short-run interests of your team, your membership in civil society, takes a kind of say, what Bismarck called civil courage or moral courage that is not widely held. And it would be good if we come to uh, have that more widely held, I think, for people to feel that responsibility and act on it. I wouldn't have done it without the example of other people who were doing that, of people who were risking and choosing prison nonviolently and truthfully uh, by refusing to collaborate with this draft system uh, and instead went to prison or rather than go to Sweden or Canada or be CEOs, they wanted to make the strongest statement they could that this was wrong, wrongdoing that should not be participated in by an American patriotic citizen, which they were. And without that example, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do something that I thought would put me in prison for the rest of my life. And it was a miracle that it didn't have that effect. But uh, it is a, a, a real risk. And uh, it's something that whistleblowers, potential whistleblowers face but it's something that can be worth doing. Daniel Ellsberg's new book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, is now available to check out at your local NYPL branch and on our ebook app, Simply E. The New York Public Library podcast is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support by Riker Schnorr and myself, Aiden Flax-Clark. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions.